0: A Baha'i Perspective is a radio program presenting biographical interviews of people who have chosen the Baha'i faith as a way of life. Today, I'm playing a telephone interview with Gail Owens. Gail is a Baha'i who grew up on Salt Spring Island off the coast of British Columbia and later in Alaska. Gail describes her life in Estonia after getting married and her work with the elderly after returning to Canada. She is now working on two books, which she shares excerpts from in the interview. I started the interview by asking Gail to describe where she grew up.
1: I
2: spent the first 10 years of my life on Salt Spring Island, which is one of the Gulf Islands off the coast of British Columbia, Canada. So I was born there in 1960. My parents moved up to a place called Prince Rupert, which is in northern British Columbia, maybe 90 miles from Ketchikan, Alaska. So those were where my teen years were spent.
0: And why was it that you moved?
2: Well, my parents are members of the Baha'i faith, and my father in particular, who was a bush plane pilot, wanted to make himself more available for the purpose of serving the Baha'i community. He and my mother did something which is called pioneering. They went up to Prince Rupert and helped start a Baha'i community up there. So that was the reason. I mean, we we certainly needed on Salt Spring as well. But Dad really wanted to bring himself up to northern British Columbia, and he was at the time doing some work on the Queen Charlotte Islands, now known as Haida Gwaii.
0: So how far away was that from where you were?
2: Salt Spring Island to Prince Rupert, probably about 500 to 1,000 miles. Oh, wow. I guess driving, it would take you... Two full days, but flying, it doesn't take that long. You go up the coast, and actually, it's probably only about 500 miles. If you go, as the crow flies.
0: So is it a lot more remote?
2: I've been an island girl all my life. Here I am living on Vancouver Island uh, in a place called Victoria. Salt Spring was an island, and actually, Prince Rupert is on Cain Island. Salt Spring had about 3,000 people at the time, and Prince Rupert had about 20,000 people at the time, so but definitely more remote as far as getting to a larger center. Weather-wise, it was quite sad for me leaving my friends because when you're a kid, friends are everything, moving to a place where I didn't know anybody, and the weather rained all the time up there, but as the years went by, I got lots and lots of friends, and it's a real community-minded place, so I just loved it by the time we left.
0: When did you leave?
2: 19... 19- 80. My parents moved up to the Yukon. They just kept going farther and farther north. They went to Whitehorse. And by that time, I was finished my teens. And they said, we're moving up to the Yukon. Would you like to come? And I said, no, thanks. So I came down <laughs> south here and uh, to Vancouver and went to school, technical college, actually, and became a radio announcer.
0: So what's it like up in the Yukon where your parents went?
2: Well, they stayed about 10 years there. Um, it's sort of Land of the Midnight Sun, as you've probably heard. It's a beautiful place. I visited them there a couple of times. It's very remote, but lovely community as well. Then they moved down here to be closer to grandchildren, and so they've actually been here on Vancouver Island as well for the last 15 or 20 years.
0: Was radio announcing an interest that you discovered growing up? hmm How did that happen?
2: As a teenager, I became interested and started helping out at one of the radio stations in northern BC and worked a little bit for the CBC. Came down and went to technical school and learned more of the ins and outs. Did some radio here on the island. After getting married, moved with my family to a country called Estonia and did some broadcasting over there. That's kind of in my past now. It was a a great thing to do, but I've gone on to do other things which aren't related to radio at all, actually, working with seniors and the elderly.
0: Before we get on to that, what kind of radio did you do in Vancouver, Coover Island, and also in Estonia?
2: Well, um, here I work on a morning show, so I was the morning traffic reporter and uh, did that for a number of years. We don't have a lot of traffic troubles here in Victoria, but we have some commuting troubles, and so I'd report on that, mostly just there for the morning man to bounce his ideas and fun stuff off of and jokes and whatnot, and so that was wonderful fun. Then when I went to Estonia, I had my own English radio program. When I went there, it was still part of the Soviet Union, and then Estonia got their independence, and people were more and more eager to learn how to speak English practice their English. So I had the opportunity to have a radio program over there every day. So it was called Crystal Clear with Gail. And I interviewed all sorts of neat people. And it was a real mix of things. We had weather, we had news in English, we had interviews, I even had prize giveaways, things like that. It was fun. Did that for a couple of years until we moved back to Canada.
0: So there was a sufficient English speaking audience in Estonia for Mm -hmm. for the show?
2: Well, people speak a lot of different languages over there, but they're really interested in learning English. And this was in, as I say, the early 90s. People were looking for opportunities to practice their English. So basically, there was a huge population that wanted to listen to the program. And then there was expats. There was people who were working over there in banking, in retail, in all sorts of professions who maybe felt a little bit homesick for their country or their mother tongue and so they would listen because they could actually get their English news coverage and things from listening to my program.
0: Now how did the opportunity to have a radio program in Estonia even start?
2: My husband walked into a radio station called Radio Love And he said, my wife was a radio announcer in Canada. Could you by any chance use her here? (laughs) They jumped at the opportunity. So basically, he got me the job.
0: (laughs) And how come you guys were in Estonia to begin with?
2: One big part of the Baha'i faith is being of service. And we wanted to go over, and we had traveled around the Soviet Union with Red Grammar and the Teaching Peace Tour. And Red Grammar is a singer in the States. And we joined his group, for about two weeks, one spring, I think it was the spring of 1990, and we were looking for a chance to get back over to the Soviet Union. We thought it would be nice. We had a three-year-old son at the time, and we thought it would be a great opportunity to go over and do some work and also be of service if we could, because that's really important. And so we tried, and doors closed, didn't really open, and then we heard of some Baha'is who were doing some work over in Estonia, and they invited us to come over and help out. So we'd actually never heard of Estonia till that point. When we got over there, we just fell in love with the people and the place. I did some virtues classes and English classes. This was my husband, and he worked for the Ministry of Tourism there for a little while. Part of being of service with the Baha'i community is that you should also be, if you can, self-supporting. We're not missionaries. We went over, as I say, to promote and be of service, talk to them about things maybe that communism had taken away from them, talking about unity and the world as one family and child-rearing and things like that. So we went there. We wanted to work in the community and be self-supporting. So it was very easy in those days.
0: What was the name of the Red Grammar tour?
2: Oh, Red Grammar had a tour called Teaching Peace, and he had a wonderful CD, a children's CD, of the time that was called Teaching Peace. And we just happened to read about it in a Baha'i magazine that this group called Net East was looking for people to go along and join his singing tour of the Soviet Union. So we went to St. Petersburg, which was then known as Leningrad. We went to Kiev, Odessa, Moscow. And it was over a period of about two weeks. And we just fell in love with the people, wanted an opportunity to go back over there.
0: And you said you were in Estonia at the time when they transitioned from being a part of the Soviet Union to being an independent state?
2: Mm-hmm. We moved there in May of 1991, and then in the summer of 1991, August, there was the overthrow of the government, and this is when the big coup happened, and it was just Really exciting times. Uh, our family was worried for our safety, but we at no time felt worried. We were there when the, um, the ruble was no more and the Estonian crone came back in and the Estonian people got their independence. So it was a really, really fascinating time to be over there and we were there from 1991
0: to 1996. So it was a fairly smooth transition from being a Soviet Portion to, uh, it was.
2: Yeah. It was. The Estonian people are just very peace loving. And there's a wonderful movie that I recommend people watch. It's called The Singing Revolution. And really, all of the Baltic um, managed to not have a, a life, there was no life um, lost in the name of transitioning. They um, believe in song and peaceful resolution to problems. They had endured such hardship during the time of Stalin and being annexed to the Soviet Union during the war, but they did it in such a dignified way To when they got their independence back. Wonderful, wonderful people and culture.
0: Why was it that you left Estonia in 1996?
2: It became that you needed work permits. There was a lot of things that you had to do in order to be over there and uh, maintain a working status we just thought it was a time that we would like to come back to canada to be closer to family and so that my husband could go for some retraining Uh, he was in tourism at the time and he wanted to take the direction of getting into computers and it we decided to come back we visited estonia a couple of times since coming back and have maintained our friendships over there
0: and what did you do when you got back to canada
2: Well, by that time, I had two children. I tried to get back into radio, but things had changed. The radio station that I worked for had been sold. So what I did is I um, started volunteering at a local hospital in spiritual care. And I've been doing that now for over 10 years. It just led to other things. Uh, Not only do I volunteer, but I've also started my own business where I am a companion to the elderly, mostly people with dementia and Alzheimer's. Seems as though I seem to be in the right place at the right time and have done a lot of palliative care, been with people as they passed on and left this world. And it's all led to me now writing a book about my experiences.
0: Can you define for me spiritual care?
2: Spiritual care is sort of journeying with the patient, not pushing your own beliefs onto that person, not trying to push a brand of religion or helping them to see your way, but rather to see what needs they have. There's nurses and there's doctors poking and prodding at them and taking care of them from a physical standpoint. But spiritual care is just the way the name implies. It's a it's looking after their spiritual needs. So I usually go in and if they want to chat about their struggles, if they just want to chat at all, or if they would like to bounce some things off of me, the way they're feeling. Uh, And I'm there for them. As I say, I'm there to accompany them them on their spiritual journey. And so there's a number of us that volunteer at the hospital, and we come from all different faith backgrounds. And I just happen to be a Baha'i, but when I'm visiting people, I come at it from a Baha'i perspective, perhaps, if they ask for my point of view. But I'm not there to say I'm a Baha'i and these are my beliefs.
0: You're still doing spiritual care as a volunteer? Mm-hmm. It sounds like you've transitioned into health care from what you were doing before. Yeah,
2: but it's more being intuitive and knowing what people need when they're getting into their late years of life. And mostly, it seems that I volunteered a lot on the geriatric ward, so I started to recognized that there was a need for people with dementia and alzheimers to have somebody to um be with them and so i've started going into the care homes and passing out my business cards seemed to be a real need in this in this town where i live so it just skyrocketed i had so many clients but in the nature of the work they uh, passed away over the years so i've had many many come and go So now it's just led me to writing a book, which is called, which will be called Making Dying Fun. And it's basically how to make the last years of your loved one's life interesting and fun as best you can. And the book is with vignettes and and little stories and tips on how to make this possible.
0: And when is the book due to be published?
2: (laughs) Well, it's got a title and it's been written. There's some fine-tuning and some editing, but I hope within the next year to find a publisher. And I've actually started working on a website that's under construction called makingdyingfun.com.
0: So you still have the same business?
2: You know, the last of my ladies passed away, and I haven't been... This was about three weeks ago, and I haven't made any effort to um, go and get more clientele, because I really need to focus on on this writing and... I see that people are hungry for learning about what happens when you leave this world and have questions about the soul and the nature of the soul. And I think from where I'm coming from in the Baha'i faith, I mean, this isn't a Baha'i book per se, but it certainly has the knowledge that I seem to have received from being a Baha'i and reading the writings of the Prophet, Founder, Baha'u'llah. This is not our only life, we have a a spiritual life after we leave this one that our soul will progress. I just see that these wonderful souls, these people with Alzheimer's and dementia, they still have that soul very much intact, burning brightly. It is who they are, but it's hidden from their uh, confusion and their body breaking down and their infirmities. But yet, I like to try to Reach out and enter into a a relationship with this person and try to just keep their dignity and do things with them as best I can uh, as their body and situation allows, like if I could take them for a drive or if we could sit at the ocean, if I could read some poetry to them, if we could sing a little so there's there's many things I've learned over the years, and hopefully I can pass them on to others.
0: The writing of this book, it, it sounds like you still have some more to do.
2: hmm Yeah, there's some fine, fine-tuning fine to be yeah. done. But everybody who's looked at it, I guess it's a little bit like chicken soup for the soul, mm. kind of bittersweet, makes them laugh at the beginning, and then by the end of the chapter, they're crying, and I, I, I guess I take that as a good sign. And I'm also writing another book. so funny that people have their different ways of expressing themselves artistically. And I'm not a a good painter, but I do like to write. And now I've started writing a book about um, my father's flying experiences. And I've already got the title of that. (laughs) So I've got two books on the go. The book I'm writing about my father, whose name is Fletcher Bennett, is called On a Wing and a Prayer. And it's about his early days of flying and his love of flying and his experiences with going into some of the coastal communities.
0: Have you flown with him?
2: Oh, yeah, many times. Although he gave up his pilot's license when he was about 60 years of age and he's in his 80s now. But, oh, yes, we've had some good times.
0: One thing I always ask folks who grew up as a Baha'i Mm-hmm. is that in the Baha'i faith, there's this teaching of independent search for truth. Right. And at some point, did you realize or did you come to the realization that you needed to investigate this faith for yourself and to sort of own it for yourself? At oh, any
2: absolutely. Time? Absolutely. Uh, I was raised in a Baha'i home, as you say, but I didn't embrace it. Myself until I was about 25 years of age. We we believe as Bahais that at 15 it's the age of maturity, and you can basically decide for yourself what you what you believe. We're raised with the knowledge of our, our Creator and a knowledge of um, the oneness of religion. We don't have baptizing or christenings, so it's really up to us to search for our truth. Our parents educate us as best they can. And so I guess that being a teenager and wanting to go my own way, I just never really said after age 15, I am a Baha'i. And it wasn't until I was 25 and actually went to have some minor surgery, and there was a, on the form, there was a line which says, your religion for checking into the hospital. I guess if your situation turns grave, perhaps you want to notify your clergy or whatever. And I left that blank. I didn't know what to put down. And then I was um, going to get married, and we were trying to decide, hmm, didn't make sense really to get married in a church. I'd been raised as a Baha'i. My husband didn't really belong to any particular church. So we decided we'd have a Baha'i ceremony, and basically then you say the Baha'i vow, which is uh, we all verily abide by the will of God. So we said the Baha'i vows, but yet neither one of us had considered ourselves a a card carrying member of the Baha'i Faith yet. And then it was when I started to have children uh, when I was pregnant, I thought, how am I going to raise my child? And I really started independently investigating the Baha'i Faith and the teachings made such sense to me. They were just so sensible. I actually went to something called a Bahai fireside. I had been raised a Bahai. Had heard lots of speakers. I was so familiar with the teachings about the oneness of humanity and, and the equality of women and men and you know all all the wonderful teachings that uh, Baha'u'llah brought us. And it wasn't until I attended a fireside just shortly after I got married and the speaker was talking about this wonderful garden, this garden of humanity. And how, as Bahais, we sort of have that—we really have that garden. That Bahais are from every walk of life, from every culture and background and color, and every planet on the earth. There's Bahais, and so he was—he, this speaker was talking about how uh, we really are part of this wonderful garden where there's different colored flowers, and the fragrance is so wonderful and that some people come into the garden, and they stand, and they enjoy the garden, but they leave right away. And some people step inside, and they look at the beauty of the garden, but they just sort of stand at the perimeter, and they they don't go in so far. And then others go around, and they really enjoy the fragrance of the garden, and they enjoy the beauty, and then they leave as well. And he talked about you know, people sort of sitting on the fence. Like, are you going to come in and are you going to be part of this garden and tend this garden and stay in this garden for your entire life? Or are you going to kind of sit in the fence and go, yeah, that's a nice garden. I like that garden. That's good. (laughs) And I really started thinking about that as me knowing full well how wonderful the teachings are and how we have been given this gift of the knowledge that we are all one. And am I going to just sit and look inside and and, and be a fence-sitter, or am I going to stand for something? And I decided, no, now is the time that I'm going to join the Baha'i faith. And so I joined what my family had believed and what millions of other people worldwide believed, and I became part of this wonderful Baha'i family. And uh, it was actually right before the fast, Baha'i's fast in March, and I thought, we fast, you know, from sunrise to sunset. And I knew full well about this fast that was coming up, and it was just a few days prior, and I thought, well, maybe I will actually tell people I'm a Baha'i after the fast so I don't have to fast.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
2: and then I thought, no, come on. You have been a Baha'i in your heart for 25 years. Now's the time to do it. So there's my story.
0: <laughs> Had you fasted ever before for the Baha'i no, fast? No, never.
2: No. Yeah. I so admire the youth today that actually you know, decide what they want Become Baha'is at an early age, and at 15, the age of maturity, they start fasting because uh, I never, I, I don't think I had that kind of willpower at that age.
0: I know you're writing two books, but is there something out in the future, a vision, long range, you'd like to see yourself doing?
2: I've got a third book in mind.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
2: <laughs> i got all these book ideas and no publisher yet. Yeah. But so I think I'll continue writing these books, continue, tra- continue to travel, and continue to try to live a good life, a life of service, hopefully a life of purpose.
0: What's your third book idea?
2: It's going to be called Quest for More. Yeah, actually, I've got a fourth idea, too. What's <laughs> it's called that? My Baha'i Family Tree.
1: Uh-huh.
2: <laughs> I got all these ideas just bursting forward.
1: That's great. Um,
2: yeah. So Quest for More is a little takeoff on my great-grandfather, who was a, a geologist, prospector, and found um, iron ore in the United States in the Masabi Range. He wrote a book called Quest for Ore. And I just thought this could be a little bit more, Quest for More, which is what happened after he passed away and with his family and with their money and what kind of philanthropic deeds did they do with that money and sort of trace that. Yeah, I better get cracking. (laughs) That's so much much I want to write.
0: And what about your fourth book idea?
2: My Baha'i Family Tree? Yeah. Anybody could have this book. It's looking at where they heard about the faith and where that person who told them about the faith heard about the faith from. And there's been lots of books written similar that document the history and the lineage. Mine is going to be maybe a do-it-yourself kind of getting the Baha'i family tree, your specific one, and making some sort of a scrapbook or something out of it so that you Mm -hmm. could pass it on. You know how in years past they had the family Bible? Mm Mm-hmm. And in the Bible, they would have the the birth, death, marriages all recorded. Well, I was thinking something similar.
0: You said that maybe you do some traveling in the future. Have you done any other traveling other than Estonia?
2: Well, I went on Baha'i pilgrimage a couple of times, which means that we go to the Baha'i World Center in Haifa, Israel. I've been there. I've been to Greece, and I've been to Australia and New Zealand, and... I'd like to travel around more in Canada and more in my region, visiting people and going to the United States. Funny, I married a travel agent. Uh, He loves to travel. We did a lot of traveling before, or he did, separately from me before we got married. And then when we had kids, we did a lot of going back and forth between um, Estonia and Canada to England and Germany and all sorts of places around the former Soviet Union. My children have just taken up this love for travel, and they just have itchy, itchy feet and just can't wait to get going. You know, one's in, my son's in his 20s, and my daughter's in her late teens, graduated from school, and all she wants to do is just make money and travel, and they want to be of service and get to know the world, and it makes the world such a a smaller place when you can, can travel and go other places. But at this moment, one particular trip doesn't really come to mind for myself, mm-hmm. there's just been a lot of coming and going, and I'm kind of content right now to sit in front of my computer and do some writing.
0: Well, I look forward to seeing your first book published.
2: Thank you. Do you want to hear a a paragraph out of the book about my father? Sure. Let me see what I've got here.
0: So this is from...
2: On a Wing and a Prayer. I have many happy memories of my time spent with my father, and I've often recounted to friends stories from my idyllic childhood. At least that's how I saw the first ten years of my life on Salt Spring Island, brought up in a beautiful house on St. Mary Lake with my dad's Cessna float plane tied up at the dock. However, this story isn't about me. It's about my father, and it is most suitable that I begin it with the words to the song that stuck in my head all these years. Good morning, son. Good morning, son. The night is gone. The day's begun. I'm certain as I work and play that God will help me through the day. It is appropriate that I start with the son. Because years later, when I asked my dad about his spiritual journey and why he became a Baha'i, his first mention was the sun and his fascination with it from a very early age. As a boy, he would look up at the sky and that burning orb, and his thoughts would be centered around it. He had an urge to get closer to it, to be as high as he possibly could. It's funny that he didn't become an astronaut now that I think of it, but it was his destiny to become a pilot. I've kept many things he sent me over the years, including newspaper clippings and emails, and an undated article I have with the following words highlighted with regard to a group of up-and-coming pilots. While these young pilots hail from different parts of the country, their stories about how they got into flying have similar roots. Several have fathers or uncles who are pilots, and almost all of them say they remember looking up, up, way up as kids and feeling the pull of the sky.
0: Would you like to read something from... Making Dying Fun?
2: I will see if I have something here. When I listened to Darlene Gates' interview, I mean, it just was so beautiful, and I think she had just so much to offer, and her artwork is so fantastic. Like, I live, you know, fairly close to her gallery, and I thought, oh, what am I going to say? You know, it's a hard (laughs) act to follow. (laughs) Okay, so I'll start now. All right. Violet was a crusty woman with a beautiful smile. A former school teacher, she liked order and respect. Her favorite thing to yell was, Help! Much to the chagrin of her care aids. It was really unsettling because when you heard it yelled, you were sure that she'd fallen on the floor or into the toilet. I had explained to her on more than one occasion that yelling help indicated an emergency and that her needing help pulling up her pants was not one of those events that the word help needed to be yelled. Neither was having any other personal hygiene carried out. Neither was sheer boredom. This 80-something lady was in a wheelchair as a result of a stroke. She was divorced, and according to one of her daughters, mentioning the ex could evoke a bit of profanity. An extremely independent soul, she had driven a car until the date of her stroke and had looked after her own home and garden. I guess that's why so many times she would make her own way onto the elevator in the care home and go downstairs to the lobby on her own to poke about. She did that on her own, but... She didn't really like to be alone, and she'd sure light up when I came to see her. She liked walks, cups of tea, lottery tickets, and bingo. She also enjoyed seeing her daughters and her grandchildren, and she adored a good joke. A few teddy bears and assorted stuffed animals decorated her room, but she preferred live animals, and her current favorite was one of the carriage dogs named Cosmo. She always kept dog biscuits in her room to feed him when he would visit. Sometimes I would read to her from the Reader's Digest, mostly from those sections life like that, or kids say the darndest thing, and she would chuckle and recollect her teaching career funnies. She liked to tease, and she liked to be teased. She could see the joke in many things and enjoyed harmless fun. One of her favorite things was to get me to push her over to the window or t- so she could look out at the nearby construction site and the progress being made on the building. She enjoyed the noise, the action, and to be honest, she really liked to look at the construction workers. Quite often, I would find her there on her own looking out the window and the goings-on. During the autumn, we would go for a walk to the local shopping district, and on the way, I'd pick bright-colored leaves for her. A couple of times, I pushed her right through the, the mud puddle. She just loved to get wet, and she felt like a kid getting splashed like that, and she didn't care a bit if she got wet. I was her companion for at least two Christmases, and during that holiday period, I would write and address her Christmas cards on her behalf. I started to really know a bit about her relatives and friends, and I would learn about her past and her growing up years in a small Canadian town. Craft activities and decorating for special occasions delighted her, and when she wasn't with me or napping or visiting her family, she'd be joining in with the activity worker and following her around while she put up Valentine's or Easter's or Christmas decorations up. The Violet I grew to know and love was extremely generous. She appreciated the manicures I did for her and the jewelry cleaning. She liked pampering, and she always thanked me. Her quality of life up until the end was good, even though she couldn't use her hands very well or walk. She made the most of her somewhat confined existence, and it was truly a sad day when I got a phone call from her daughter, shocking me with the news that her mom had passed away from an aortic aneurysm. She had agonizing pain, slumped over, was sent to the hospital by ambulance, and died a short time later. I was present at the graveyard when her family put her ashes in a mausoleum. It was 2005. A lot of good stories were being told, and I was invited back to one of the homes for a toast to dear Violet. Being a non-drinker, I raised my glass of ginger ale and rejoiced in my mind, imagining this bird, now released from a cage, her soul free to fly without the hindrances of that wheelchair.
0: That, that, that's got to get published.
2: <laughs> I got, oh, really? <laughs> like it?
0: Yeah,
3: I do. I, do. I have
2: so many of them. I, I have so many. There's this one guy, Eddie, he was Jewish. Oh, and at the end of my story about Eddie, I say Mazel tov, Eddie. <laughs> he, is just, he was just the most amazing man. Yeah, I've got a dozen stories like that. Yeah. So I'm glad you liked it. Now, this is crazy. I know that Darlene Gate, one of the last people you interviewed, she talked about, you asked her about when she first started painting as a child and how, the, how it came to her, and she talked about her spirit guide. And Mm -hmm. she said, I know that sounds crazy, (laughs) but I tell you, I was going to write a story about my travels to Estonia. That was going to be first on deck. And I was just driving along a couple of years ago, minding my own business, and I don't normally hear voices in my head, believe me. And this voice said very loud and clear, you have to write a book, and it has to be called Making Dying Fun. (laughs) It just, (laughs) the hair just stood up on the back of my neck. (laughs) (laughs) It was nobody's voice I recognized. Yeah. And I phoned my husband. I said, I have, to buy, I have to write a book, and it has to be called Making Dying Fun. I mean, so the title was already picked for me. Right. So I guess that I just felt driven that after all these different people I'd looked after had passed away, that their stories had to be told. You know, that they weren't just these, these people that had wandered around and didn't know the time of day or who they were anymore because of this dementia. I thought, I want to tell their stories.
0: You're their voice.
2: hmm Yeah, from the time I was little, the neighbor said, boy, she's got a determined little mouth. <laughs> 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 so, yes, I guess I'm their voice.
0: Did you write when you were young?
2: Oh, you know, I wrote letters back and forth to people. My mother always said, if you want to get a letter, you got to write a letter. Mm. So I'd write letters and get letters back from people. And then I remember I wrote... A speech called "Feeding Chipmunks" in Banff National Park. I was in grade one, and I got up. It was my first foray into public speaking, and I had been chosen for this oratorical contest on Salt Spring Island at my school. And I got up. I was asked to read it. It had been chosen as one of the winners, and the grade twelve kids had gotten up, and they said, "Ladies and gentlemen, parents and teachers," and they had this big opening. I just burst out crying because I wasn't prepared with the opening lines and the principal had to blow my nose. So I guess that was one of my first things I wrote. And then, I think in junior high and high school, I wrote for the school newspaper. And then, when I graduated, I started doing record album reviews for the CBC. So that's it. But then I kind of you know gave it a rest for a few years, and here, here it's come back.
0: So did it come back pop when you heard the voice saying you've got to write a book. Uh, I decided
2: I better get going on it quick. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: So there was no idea to write a book before that?
2: I, I had been thinking about writing a book about my time in Estonia, but it had all been right. 15 years fifteen years on the back burner, right. and I still haven't got to that one, and that's right. got no title. But it was a fascinating times so when I was living over there, and I thought that that should be shared. I definitely have kept all my letters to and from uh, my parents at that time. And emails and and things, so I have saved that. So that's a, there's another book on the that's got to be written someday.
0: So you got a lot on your plate here.
2: Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it's been great talking to you about it.
0: Yeah, yeah, it's great great hearing about it. <laughs> so I really, I really am looking forward to seeing something out there for 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 me to read.
2: Thank you, Warren. Thank you. So I'll, I'll get on to it. you know. Some people said that they one friend of mine who writes. She said that she takes her computer and she, sit, she sits at the coffee shop, but then she becomes way too social and she sees friends and then she stops writing and it gets a little distracting. And then I know somebody else who, who sort of writes every single day of the week. They just sit down and it's like their job. Mm-hmm. But I decided just to set aside one day a week. And so every Tuesday I try to write. I don't answer the phone. I you know just sit and write on Tuesdays.
0: So how's it going? good. good. (laughs) It's (laughs)
2: good. I've taken a couple breaks, you know, for travels. I went to Hawaii to celebrate my 50th and our 25th wedding anniversary and um, came back and I'm getting back at it again.
0: Well, Gail, it was such a pleasure to talk with you and thank you so much for sharing what you're
2: doing. Thank you for the opportunity.
0: I hope you enjoyed that interview with Gail Owens, a Baha'i from Canada who has worked in elder care and is now writing a book about our experiences. For a copy of this and other interviews, you can go to the website www.abahaiperspective.com. For information specifically on the Baha'i faith, you can go to the website www.baha'i.org, or you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22UNITE. I hope you'll join me next time on A Baha'i Perspective.
3: I will be a happy and joyful being. Oh God, I will no longer be full of anxiety, nor will I let trouble around. than I am to myself I dedicate myself to the Spirit, purify my. Heart.
4: Such a short, brief stay Operation brings such pain.